Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In 1959, on a dark, windswept mountain in Russia, nine people heard the huge crack and following rumble of unmistakable terror. Ripping free from their tent, the group hurried out into a raging blizzard with no shoes and barely any clothing to protect them from the elements, never to be seen alive again. What happened on Dead Mountain is a secret that she keeps only to herself. Stay tuned to hear all about that on The Reluctant Historian. What's up, everybody? I'm Liz Lawson, and this is our Reluctant Historian. Dakota Lawson. This is the podcast where I try to show my husband that history is actually cool. So, if you love history, or you absolutely hate it, this podcast is for you. We would like to begin by recognizing that we are recording on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis Nation. We make this acknowledgement in recognition that we are settlers here on the land that belongs to the many different First Nations of Canada. Okay, Coda, guess is about today's topic. Ooh, well, it sounds intriguing. It's going to be, uh, I feel like a beast of some some sort. Uh, 1959... Yeah, I don't, I don't know anything that happened that year. So, I don't know. I'm trying to think. Um, wait, so the one girl's keeping a secret. So she, there was a survivor, maybe. You said that you said that there was. They were never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. Yes, I said that. Werewolves. Alive, never to werewolves. Seen, be seen alive again. Okay, it's werewolves. Okay, I'm going with werewolves. <gasps> Ooh, no, frost giants. Let's go with frost giants because <laughs> like from uh, Thor. Oh, I was thinking more Elder Scrolls Skyrim, but yeah, yeah, um, okay. that works. Um, they, because it's a, it's a winter theme. Right. So winter werewolves theme. wouldn't fit this Absolutely not. situation. Yeah. So I'm going to say frost giants. Ooh, okay. So a frost giant is the one keeping the secret. <laughs> okay. So the frost giant disguises itself as one of these teenagers. It's sort of like a... I don't know. Think a teen slasher movie, but okay. circa 1959. Okay. And he disguises himself as one of the teenagers. Yeah. Infiltrates them. Yeah. You know, says stuff like bodacious and groovy. Right. As just, they do in the 50s. Yes. Just to prove that he's one of them. Right. This also tells you that I, Dakota, don't know what they said in the 50s. <laughs> oh, oh, well, okay. Um, uh, what about something like, uh, this, this is, this is bodacious, say. See, they he says he talks like he's from the seventies. No, no, he uses words that are from the seventies, but he tricks them in by using that fifties type Where of talking. Where is this going? <laughs> I'm almost done. Okay. God. Don't stifle creativity, dear. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Anyways, he uh, ends up fooling them. Yeah. And the then frost giant. The frost giant. Right. And then... You know, you'd think that they'd be like, why is he talking like that with weird words we've never heard? And they'd be able to figure it out. But no. They're, well, they're teens. Teens right. are stupid. Their brains yes. don't develop until 25, right? Yeah, around there. So he has a crush on one of them. Mm-hmm. And then he starts macking on one of them. You know, she's into it too, okay? It's consensual, right? Mm-hmm. And then he bites off her head. Oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, that it starts there. Everyone sees it. Everyone's around in this cave. They're hiding from the the storm, and then bam, <laughs> eats them all, and then the frost giant keeps the secret. Got it. <laughs> you nailed it. These are so interesting. Yes, I don't know where your brain goes. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> a lot of drugs, dear. A lot of drugs. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> just, com- just kidding. I don't do drugs. You're completely wrong. Um, this week's episode actually comes to us from my friend Becky. She... I thought there were no wrong ideas. This is 100% a wrong idea. Oh. <laughs> this episode, we are learning about the Dyatlov... Okay. Dyatlov... Dyatlov Pass incident in an area of the Ural Mountains of Russia. 
Hmm. In Soviet Russia, You're right. Frost Giant eats you. That's right. Yeah, you got it. So yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm excited to tell you this story. I'm excited to learn about Frost Giants. Yep. What's your golden nugget? Pokemon Legends oh, yeah. Arceus came out. Oh, so good. for faithful listeners, you'll remember I did an episode last year that was Pokemon versus religion. Now in that episode, I talked about uh, a Pokemon called Arceus who is the god of all Pokemon. This game just came out, and a thing I had in that in that episode was just, like, how I wish the Pokemon games would go more into detail about this dark shit that's going on in the Pokemon world. <laughs> and uh, they are in this game. Yeah, They're... a balloon? So, so, yeah. Sorry, I don't want to no, steal no, your thunder. No, no, it's fine. So there's this Pokemon. It's a Drifloon. Remember, this is a children's game. Uh, the history of Drifloon is that he's a balloon ghost type Pokemon. As one is. As one is. And he hangs out with children, you know. As one does. As one pedophile does. And... You had to one-up my joke, didn't you? Of course, that's what I do. And his whole intention is to drag these children to hell. And then... Like, that's in the lore? Yes. And as a reward for doing this... He gets more air put in his balloon. So the bigger the Drifloon is, the more children he's taken to hell. Is he a Krampus? Sounds like it. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it's it's crazy. So this is this was a quest in the game, not not to that level. They didn't talk about hell, but they're like, um, so there's this Drifloon hanging out with this kid, and then I went to check it out, and the kid was like, hey, so this Drifloon won't let me leave, and I think I just caught it. Before he was about to... That's so good. Like, as the Drifloon was, like, drifting away, he, like, snapped his fingers and went, Shucks! I wanted that kid's yeah. soul! I had to jump in there and go, Swiper, no swiping! <laughs> <laughs> so, and but they are dealing with religion in this game, too, which is interesting. There's two clans that discuss... Uh, oh, I have to plug my ears for this. No, no, it's, uh, it's not going to be that big. It's just that uh, two uh, clans believe in, that there's a god... And but they think that their god is better than the other person's god, oh, cool. and that theirs is the real god. And right. it's very surprising for a children's game. Mm. It's wonderful. Good. What is your golden nugget? You don't have one this week. <laughs> you had six jobs. <laughs> I was like planning to cut out my like pause and just be like, oh yeah, I'll take some time to think about it. But then you just kept talking, so now I have to leave that all in there. That's true. Uh, I, I'm sure I have a golden nugget. What about looking at houses? We haven't even talked about that. Yeah, but, like, that's not really a golden nugget, because it no? makes me super stressy, and I, like, okay. just having heart okay, palpitations well, how, every night. How, how about, how about that we're going with your sister to look oh, at houses yeah, today? So, so that's on her. That's her decision, right? Yeah, so you don't even have to make the decision. True. Yeah, we're contemplating buying a house or renovating this one, and it's been a f- wild ride. So I guess, listeners, why don't you weigh in and let us know? What do you think? Should we buy a house or renovate this house? Yeah. We'll do what you tell us. So, yeah, we will. Uh, here's a question, though. I have for the listeners, if anybody wants to write in or comment on our, our post Ooh, or anything. Ooh, that's our... That, okay. Yes, I have a golden nugget. Okay. Well, let me share my thing first. Okay. That Sorry. was rude of you. I was taught... Men, Men are talking. talking. Right. <laughs> Apparently he says that to me a lot. <laughs> Apparently. So, uh, here in Saskatchewan, Canada, which is where we're located, uh, houses are, you know, between, the house market is really high right now. But not like a Vancouver house market. Yeah. So we recognize that. I want to get into that. So, houses here are, you know, looking like a $500,000 house. $400,000 to $500,000 is kind of what you've got to, if you want a good, like, house that can be built for like a family and stuff like that right that you don't have to do renovations yeah exactly so and if you do want to do renovations too you're gonna have to put a you know buy a house for nearly four hundred thousand and then put a hundred thousand into it so it's expensive meanwhile in bc where people can't afford houses, yeah they're like a million dollars they're like yeah a million dollar homes so i'm curious in your part of the world wherever you are what is the house market like what is like what would you be spending on a house in say australia oh yeah or colorado is where employees society's from uh somewhere in the middle of america right (laughs) um i i'm not i can't remember 
Exactly. I want to say Minnesota, but they also they also don't talk like they're from Minnesota. Minnesota. So I'm probably <laughs> wrong about that. Correct me in the comments. Uh, <laughs> and we have other listeners too. So yeah, let us know. Yeah. So yeah, let us know, and I'd love to share that on the you know another episode about just talking about the house market. Welcome to Talking Houses. Maybe I'll do a history of the housing market, which sounds to me but boring as very fuck. boring. I don't even know if I would want to do that. No. But, like, maybe it could be interesting. Who knows? You could do a thing on um, the history of, like, say, a house. Well, this might scare you. Some sort of haunted house uh, that people, like... Do that or, for Wicked Wednesday. Or, yeah, or, like, people buying a house that somebody died in. and what's Like the, the Amityville Horror. Yeah, exactly. And then you can never do an overnight again. Yeah, that's true. Oh, man. Amityville Horror with Ryan Reynolds. Whew, that's a banger. Great. So, wait, what's your actual golden nugget then? Uh, so, we had three for real comments on our Instagram. Right. <laughs> yes. Did you pull them up? I didn't. No. Okay. Well, I can uh, kind of... Give us a sum summary. Oh. Some sum summary. Yeah. So, usually on our Instagram posts, we get likes. Uh, but for comment-wise, we get, you know, bots being like, hey, promote your podcast on our website. And, which... and then I like to, I like to comment them. back and troll them just because it's fun. Not yeah. that they actually probably see that, but yeah. it's... It's just a, a hoot nanny of a good time. Yeah. So this this week on our Vlad the Impaler episode, we had uh, three real people comment, and yeah. it was like very exciting because we feel like we feel like we're on the precipice of growth. Yes, you know we... what that feels like, don't you, Dakota? It's <laughs> a really really a boner joke. <laughs> what if, what if I was impotent? What if I couldn't get a boner? Then I'd be like the. I'm leaving this podcast. How dare you uh, bring up my inac- inadequacies in the bedroom? <laughs> I have yet to decide if I'm keeping this in here. You got to keep that in. That's that's gold. That's what the listeners... The listeners come for the boner jokes. Okay. So first we had... Uh, I was pie yo first. Uh, said, LOL! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Crying emoji laughing face. Okay. Then we got... Uh, uh, Jester Kiwi said, an episode that really spiked my interest. Right on point with uh, the subject matter. Ooh, that's uh, punny. Right on point with the Point because sub- impale, impale people on points? Oh. That's... Well, th- this comment was too smart for me, apparently. I but like but Liz got it. Uh, and it spiked my interest? Fucking bang on. Anyways, then he says T-I-L. I don't know that uh, acronym. T-I-L. Today I learned. Today I learned. Okay, t- today I learned. Uh, geez, uh, Jester Kiwi, you're a... Uh, Too smart. <laughs> well, you're a... I mean, I, I thought I was a, a youngin', but I, you're taking me to school with these, you know, acronyms. Uh, today I learned a few new factoids. Thanks, folks. Your work is really getting better. Oh. And then Enlighten Intuitive said, I love that uh, Liz actually made Dakota squeamish with this one. <laughs> Excellent work. Yay. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, you know. That was th- really exciting for us. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise for me. I wasn't expecting to be that horrified. By, yeah, that you was. Know? So, I mean, but anyways, thanks for thanks for commenting. And uh, if you comment, you know, on stuff, maybe we'll read it in the future. Yeah, and then until we f- get too famous, and then we probably won't. Well, we'll read like one or two. Let's like... Let's let them think that right. we're going to read their comments right. forever so that That's they continue to support us, you yes. know, we're until we turn into shills and, yes. uh, you know, act forget like... Forget about the little people. Forget about the little people, act like, act like they owe us, you right, know? Right, 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 right. So, anyways. Um, I have a correction connection or a correction corner. I can't remember what we called it, so if uh, you remember, I'm pretty sure it's on episode six. Well, either way, correction connection, I think, is I better. like correction connection, too. Uh, it comes to us from Lexi about last week's episode. It's, um, so she said that she really enjoyed uh, Daddy Vlad, but Daddy Vladdy would have been better, and it's it was much a better. missed opportunity on yeah. my part. So kudos to Lexi for coming up with that, because I freaking love that. It's, it's Daddy Vladdy! Yes. Oh, that... That, that sounded a little perverted. This is a children's show, dear. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so Daddy Vladdy, I, I, I do like, and honestly, you should be embarrassed that you didn't come up with that first. Very embarrassed. So, that's awkward, but uh, thanks for writing in, Lexi. Uh, we appreciate your support. We do. Thank we you. We won't shill yet. We won't shill yet. 
All right. Well, let's get into this because we're already at 16 minutes and this is a long episode. So thanks for listening to our intro. So to begin, the Dyatlov Pass is an area of the Ural Mountains of Russia. This mountain range runs from north to south through western Russia from the coast of the Arctic Ocean and up north into Kazakhstan. The mountain range forms part of the conventional boundary between Europe and Asia. They are about 2,500 kilometers long, which is from about here to just a little bit before Toronto. The highest peak is 1,895 meters high, and they are among the world's oldest existing mountain ranges. Interesting as well that for their age of 250 to 300 million years, they are unusually high. The incident that I will be talking about didn't actually take place at Dyatlov Pass. Rather, it happened on the slope of Kolat Syakl. Syakl? This is going to be fun listening to you uh, try to speak Russian. Usually I'm okay with Russian pronunciations, like especially for last names. However, I'm having a struggle with these ones for whatever reason. Uh, Kolat Syakl, which means dead mountain in Russian. Kolat Syakl. Yep. Uh, fun fact, there is also a game on PC called Colot that is based on what I'm about to tell you. Oh, interesting. I've uh, never heard of it. Yeah. This story takes place in Russia in 1959 when a group of young men and women, 10 in total, decided to go on a skiing and hiking expedition in the northern Ural Mountains. The group was led by 23-year-old radio engineering student Igor Dyatlov. He's too young to do this who gathered up some of his peers and fellow university students to go with him by using the university sports club. They were among the elite of Soviet youth and were all highly experienced winter campers and cross-country skiers. I just don't get winter camping. Yeah, you like camp and... I don't know. I mean, like... Some of my friends are into it and I'm like, why? Like, I don't like camping as it is and then you're just going to throw winter, (laughs) the worst fucking thing ever at you. The worst? It's worse than not winter. (laughs) Than not winter. I was going to say, yeah, keep going. (laughs) Okay. Georgi Krivonyshenko was a close friend of Igor's and was an engineer at the Mayak nuclear complex in the then secret town of Chablensk 40. Chablensk 40. Yeah. They they just decided like they they were going to start the word out with Russian and end American. (laughs) No, like actually the number 40. We are Chablensk. 40. I'm, I'm, I mean, it was probably called Chablensk, and then whatever the word for 40 in Russian was. 40. <laughs> yeah, and also the fun fact, it was secret at this time, because, you know, so- Soviet Russia was, like, all about secrets and stuff. That is one thing I knew about Soviet Russia. Yes. He was small and wiry and told jokes, sang, and played the mandolin. Hmm. Much like me. But you don't winter camped. No, but I play the mandolin. That's true. Oh, I mean, tell jokes. I do that, too. Yes, and you're small and wiry. I prefer small and muscular, but, you know, to each their own. Two other recent graduates were Rustem Slobodon and Nicolas Thibault Brignol, who was of French descent, and whose father had been nearly worked to death in one of Stalin's gulags. The other members were Yuri Yudin, Yuri Doroshenko, and Alexander Kolotov. See, I'm good at their last names. Yeah, you're doing great. Keep it up, champ. The youngest of the group... <laughs> The youngest of the group was only 20 years old, was named Luda Dubanina, and she was an economics major, track athlete, and ardent communist. Interestingly enough, Luda had actually been shot by a hunter on a previous wilderness outing, but she survived. Luda! Each member of the group were experienced grade 2 hikers with ski tour experience. When you climb mountains, you earn specific certification, which clarifies which types of mountains you are trained to climb. Grade 2 covers the ascent of a peak of 2,000 to 600 meters on rock, snow, and ice. Uh, And it also says that you're able to use pitons for belaying. Essentially, what it means is that you kind of know what you're doing. And by kind of, I mean really do. So it's like leveling up in a video game. Exactly, you get it. Yes. When they completed this hike, they would then receive their grade 3 certification, which was at the time the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. The route they chose was specifically designed by Dalatov's group in order to reach the far northern regions of Sverdislav Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River, which was in the traditional territory of the Mansi, an indigenous people in Russia. Dalatov's itinerary would have the group skiing 200 miles on a route that no Russian, as far as anyone knew, had taken before. The mountains here were gentle and rounded, and the challenge wouldn't be in the rugged terrain, but in the brutally cold temperatures, deep snow, and high winds. The route was approved by the Sverdislavsk City Route Commission, which was a division of their Committee of Physical Culture and Sport. Their goal was to reach 
Otorton, which was a mountain 10 kilometers north of the site where the incident occurred. This was a time of optimism in the USSR when economic growth was robust and the standard of living was rising. The expedition that was proposed by Dalatov was just one more example of the boldness and vigor of the new Soviet generation. So the group was approved for their mountain trek, and they were giving their route back on January 23rd, and when they left, the route slash time was expected to be a Category 3, meaning the most difficult time to hike. So they were leaving to go on this hike at, like, a dangerous time in the in the season. Okay. A couple of days before the group set off, the school that Igor and the others attended added a new member who was much older than the others and largely unknown to them. <laughs> and he was 10 feet taller than all of them. <laughs> And blue, and blue. <laughs> <laughs> Semyon Zolotorov, a 37-year-old World War II veteran who sported an old-fashioned mustache, stainless steel crowns on his teeth, and tattoos. I was in the war. <laughs> Is that what he would be like? Mm -hmm. Or uh, more like, or maybe like, uh, I was in the war. <laughs> That's probably what he sounded like. Russian about. monster magic for you? Yep. The group arrived by train at Ividel, which is a town in the center of the northern province of Sveterslovsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25th. They were in high spirits, so high that on a layover between the trains, Georgie was briefly detained by... That's your wiry guy. Was briefly detained by the police for playing his mandolin and pretending to panhandle in the train station. Did the cops say to him, Hiya, Georgie! <laughs> These details are known to us because there was a communal journal kept by the group, as well as many of them kept their own personal journals. At least five members of the group had cameras, and the pictures show a lively and strikingly handsome group of young people having the adventures of their lives, skiing, laughing, playing in the snow, and mugging for the camera. And mugging for the camera. I got his wallet! <laughs> Not what <laughs> mugging for the camera means. <laughs> give me give Give, give me your pearls or I'll kill you and your uh, and your uh, husband, but I'll leave your child alive. It's Batman. I know. Okay, good. <laughs> they then continued on their way by catching a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night in Vizhai, the skiers purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. The plan was to end up in the tiny village of Vizhai around February 12th and then telegram the university sports club to let them know they had safely made it. However, the telegram never came. On January 27th, they began their trek, and on the 28th, one member of the group, Yuri Yudin, who suffered from several health ailments, including rheumatism and a congenital heart defect, turned back because of knee and joint pain that made him unable to continue the hike. Should he have been out there in the first place? Well, so that makes me think that maybe I can hike mountains with my Dave. Keep in mind, he turned back. That's true. Anyways, that left nine humans to continue onward. On January 31st... Oh, this is like right now. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. In a wooded valley, they cached extra food and equipment that they would be using for the trip back, and the next day the hikers started to move through the pass. It seemed they planned to get over the pass and make camp for the next night on the opposite side. However, due to worsening weather conditions, snowstorms, and decreasing visibility, they lost their direction and ended up going westward toward the top of Kolat Cycle. When they realized their mistake, the group decided to set up camp there on the slope of the mountain rather than move 1.5 kilometers downhill to a forested area that would have offered some shelter from the weather. Our knee pain friend, Yudin, speculated that Dalatov probably did not want to lose the altitude that they had gained or else he wanted to practice camping on the mountain slope. So they're on the side of a mountain in a fucking blizzard. That sounds like the worst kind of hell. Yes. So when February 12th came and went with no telegram, there was at first not much of a concern. The sports club assumed that the group had just been held up. There had been reports of a heavy snowstorm in the mountain after all. But after several days passed, families of the group began placing frantic phone calls to the university and to the local bureau of the Communist Party. And on February 20th, a search was launched. There were several search parties, in fact. Student volunteers from the university, prison guards from the Ividel camp, Mansai hunters, local police, and the military even deployed planes and helicopters. Then, on February 25th, the students found ski tracks, and the next day they found the group's tent, which was above a tree line on a remote mountain that the Mansai called Dead Mountain. There was no one inside. No, because the frost giant ate them. 
The tent was partly collapsed and largely buried in the snow. After digging it out, the search party saw that the tent appeared to have been deliberately slashed in several places. However, inside the tent, everything was neat and orderly. The skier's boots and other equipment were arranged on either side of the door. Food was laid out as if it were about to be eaten, and there was a stack of wood for a heating stove and clothes, cameras, and journals. The campsite baffled the search party. It didn't make sense to have such disarray on the outside of the tent, but the inside to be pristine with the group's personal belongings and shoes right there. About 100 feet downhill, the search party found very distinct footprints of eight or nine people walking, not running, toward the tree line. Almost all the prints were of stocking feet, and some were even bare. One person appeared to be wearing a single ski boot. The search party followed the prints downhill for six to 700 yards until they vanished near the tree line. The next morning, searchers found the bodies of Georgi, the mandolin player, and Yuri Doroshenko under a tall cedar tree at the edge of the forest. They were laying next to a dead fire wearing only their underwear. 12 to 15 feet up the tree were some recently broken branches, and on the trunk, bits of skin and torn clothes were found. So let this be a lesson to you. Don't try to have an orgy in a winter storm. What? Okay, that, they were in their underwear, right? So, like, I think they were about to get it on <laughs> when they froze to death and then a frost giant ate them. Later that day, the search party discovered the bodies of Dalatov and Zenidia Kolmogorova further up the slope. <laughs> Zenidia Klamidia. <laughs> further up the slope, facing in the direction of their tent, with their fists tightly clenched. They seemed to have been trying to get back. These four bodies were autopsied while the search for the others continued. The medical examiner noted a number of bizarre findings. Yuri had blackened fingers and third-degree burns on a shin and a foot. Inside his mouth was a chunk of flesh that he had bitten off of his right hand. Oh. Georgie's body had burned hair on one side of his head, and he was wearing a charred sock. All of the bodies were covered with bruises, abrasions, scratches, and cuts, as was the fifth body, that of recent graduate Slobodin, which was discovered a few days later. Like Dolotov and Kolmogorva, Slobodin was on the slope leading back to the tent, with a sock on one foot and a felt booty on the other. His autopsy also noted a minor fracture to his skull. This is a kinky orgy. <laughs> By now, a homicide investigation was underway. Toxicology tests were done, witness testimony taken, diagrams and maps made of the scene, and evidence gathered and forensically analyzed. The tent and its contents were helicoptered out of the mountains and set up again inside a police station. And a frost giant was brought in for questioning. <laughs> it wasn't me. They were alive when I went to the bathroom. I came back. They were all dead. And naked. Think it was a kinky orgy. This led to a key discovery that the tent had been slashed from the inside. What? Not the, from the outside. The, the murderer is coming from inside the tent. Something had happened that made the skiers cut their way out of a tent and flee into the night into a howling blizzard in 20 below temperatures in bare feet or socks. Georgie farted. <laughs> oh, Georgie, God damn it! <laughs> They were not novices in the Winter Mountains and would have been acutely aware of the fatal consequences of leaving the tent half-dressed in those conditions. And this has been the central and apparently inexplicable mystery of the incident. What caused these young people to run? All right, what's your hypothesis? Uh, not a frost giant. Not a frost giant? And not a fart. Not a fart. Jesus, I, I mean, uh, my, might as well take uh, everything away from me, you know? Uh, well, I wonder if some sort of Something got into the tent from a like, skunk. A skunk. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm thinking like Pepe Le Pew. <laughs> well, I don't know. Like some sort of greeby little fuck uh, mm. got into the tent, like slipped in or something like that in a crack or something like that. And like, where did he come from? Where did he go? Where did he come from, Cotton Eye Joe? Uh, I don't know. Like, I'm. Th I just parasite comes to mind. I don't mm. know why. Like the movie. No, 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 like a parasite. Like an alien. You're right, it was aliens, just like the Tunguskan event. That's right. Uh, Which also happened in Russia around, no, not around this time. That was like 50 well, years ago. either way, the, the, the point remains that aliens are in Russia. That's true. I don't know. I mean, I, I just think, I think some sort of parasite. Okay. But. In early May, when the snow began to melt, a Mansai hunter and his dog came across the remains of a makeshift snow den in the woods 250 feet from the cedar tree, a floor of branches laid in a deep hole in the snow. Pieces of tattered clothing were found strewn about, black cotton sweatpants with the right leg cut off, the left half of a woman's sweater. 
That sounds weird to me. I don't know why it's like half of the clothing. I don't know. know. Another search team arrived and, using avalanche probes around the den, brought up a piece of flesh. Excavation uncovered the four remaining victims lying together in a rocky stream bed under at least 10 feet of snow. The autopsies revealed catastrophic injuries to the three of them. Thibault Brignol's skull was fractured so severely that pieces of bone were driven into the brain. The other two had crushed chests with multiple broken ribs, and the autopsy reported a massive hemorrhage in the right ventricle of one of Dubonina's heart. Uh, that's the girl who had previously been shot. Okay. Medical examiners said the damage was similar to what is typically seen as the result of an impact of an automobile moving at high speed. Whoa. Yet, none of the bodies had external penetrating wounds, though one body was missing its eyes, and Dubonina's was missing its eyes, tongue, and part of the upper lip. I think, oh, okay, 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 I got it. So, this doesn't explain why what got into the tent, mm. but you said vehicle collision, right? What else, What could get up that mountain? Skidoo, okay? What movie is about a car that comes to life? Sort of. Carrie, okay? Carrie? Car- isn't that Carrie? With the car that comes to life? It's like an evil car? Steven, Stephen King? Well, Carrie's the one where she... Oh, the pig blood one. Yes. What's the What's the one with the... I don't know, I've never seen it. Fuck. Okay, well, there's a car, an evil car that comes to life. The point is, evil snowmobile. Got it. <laughs> it, it. It killed them, ripped out their eyes. Makes sense. Does it? <laughs> a careful inventory of clothing recovered from the bodies revealed that some of these victims were wearing the clothes taken or cut off the bodies of the others. So there goes your orgy theory. Aww. <laughs> and a laboratory found that several items emitted unnaturally high levels of radiation. <gasps> it was the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> I mean, that would make sense, like, why is, like, half a pant leg. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) On May 28th, the homicide investigation was abruptly closed. The lead investigator stated that his role was to determine whether a crime had been committed, not to clarify or explain what had happened to the group. He concluded that homicide was not a factor in their deaths and ended his report stating, it should be concluded that the cause of the hikers' demise was an overwhelming force which they were not able to overcome. And on an unrelated note, uh, a recently appointed frost giant was appointed to chief of police <laughs> and decided, we, we've got to close this case. They, it, was, it was definitely not a homicide. But what was this force? Well, we'll never know. It is a question that has plagued Dalatov past researchers ever since. As to be expected, the families of the victims were deeply unsatisfied with the findings, but nothing more was done, and the mysterious deaths of the nine skiers subsided into relative obscurity. That is, until 1990, when the original prosecutor published an article claiming that he'd been pressured into not including his true view on what had happened. So you were right. Oh, it was the frost giant. <laughs> the article, entitled The Enigma of Fireballs, said that the skiers had been killed by heat rays or balls of fire associated with UFOs. In his original examination of the scene, he had found trees with unusual burn marks, which confirmed that some kind of heat ray or a powerful force whose nature is completely unknown acted selectively on specific objects. In this case, people. In fact, the last photograph in one of the group's cameras shows flares and streaks of light in the background. Since then, the official files have been released and the case has become one of the most celebrated mysteries of the Soviet era. It has generated dozens of books and documentaries, podcasts, and websites which trade theories about what happened. Currently, there's about 75 different theories circulating. In 2000, relatives and friends of the victims established the Dalatov Group Memorial Foundation, whose purpose is to honor the memory of the skiers and seek the truth. The president of this group states that Russians tend to favor one of two theories. One, the skiers died because they had stumbled into an area where secret weapons were being tested— Or two, the group was killed by mercenaries, probably American spies. I fucking love this story. Like, it's like, what? Why is this what you're going with? (laughs) It's probably those fucking Americans. (laughs) Like, yeah, it just makes me giggle. The first theory, so the secret weapons test, it also makes me feel like kind of like Marvel University. Mm. Yeah. Uh, The first theory is also one that the families believe. The idea is that a missile launch of some kind went disastrously wrong, inflicting severe injuries on some of the skiers and forcing the group to flee their tent, at which point they either froze to death or were killed by military observers. Yuri Yudin, the knee guy, also stated that the group's deaths were not natural. Not long before he died in 2013, he declared that his teammates had been taken from the tent at gunpoint and had been murdered. 
He points to Dubonina's lack of tongue as proof, saying that it must have been cut out by her killers as she was the most outspoken of the group. So now he doesn't have any, like, facts really to support that. That's just, like, his theory. And the tongue being gone. I just imagine her being, like, just really snotty to them about the whole thing. Like, uh, them, like, had that as a last resort, being like, she won't shut the fuck up. And just having to cut her tongue out. Like, they're like, oh, even after we cut out her eye, she just keeps on bitching at us. (laughs) Others who live in the region point to flashes of light and moving balls of fire that they could see in the direction of the mountains. And in 2008, a three-foot-long piece of metal was found in the area that, according to the Dalatov Foundation, is part of a Soviet ballistic missile. Military tests also explain the amount of radiation found on the recovered clothing. This theory is not consistent, however, with what was found at the site. There was no evidence that other people had been there, and snow does not lie. It would have been close. <laughs> snow was brought into questioning, in for questioning, hooked up to a lie detector test, and snow does not lie. It would have been close to impossible to erase signs of the people and equipment involved in killing the group and restaging the scene. And besides, what would be the point in making the scene so bizarre, with bodies scattered around the landscape, clothing cut off some and placed on others, and then others found in a snow den? Some people theorize that the extra man, so that frost giant guy that you think of, um, may have been a KGB agent who was on a secret mission to meet CIA agents in the mountain pass by giving them false information. That makes sense that the frost giant was also KGB. Yeah. They hypothesized that the CIA found out and killed the group and then staged the scene. However, the idea that the CIA would have chosen a place like Dead Mountain for a secret rendezvous is unlikely. Carbon monoxide poisoning from the heater, sudden madness caused by consuming bad alcohol or hallucinogenic mushrooms that the Mansai sometimes hung on tree to dry, or even murder by the Mansai because the hikers uh, stumbled upon sacred ground were proposed. But the autopsies were ruled out the first two, and the original investigators interviewed the Mansai and found no evidence of murder. And the Mansai provided valuable help in the search, and they told their investigators that the area was not sacred. Rather, it was considered windy, barren, and worthless. One of the most entertaining theories... I'll be the judge of that. ...is that the party was attacked by a yeti. Close to my... I mean, I feel like they're copying my idea, but whatever. The final photograph found in Tybalt Brignol's camera has become famous. A dark figure advancing through the snowy forest, hunched and menacing with no facial features. But uh, it's more likely that this is actually a picture of someone in the group coming back from the forest after doing their business. Yeah, the frost giant coming back from peeing to find all of the people dead. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, perhaps an avalanche struck the tent causing the crushing injuries to the three victims and forcing the whole group to cut their way out and head to the forest for shelter. But no avalanche debris was found. A ski pole holding up the front of the tent was still standing, and the original investigation determined that the slope was too shallow to generate an avalanche. Besides, the injuries to the three victims found in the stream bed were totally incapacitating. They could never have made it there unassisted. It was more than a mile from the tent, and the tracks leading downhill showed no signs of anyone being dragged. There were eight or nine separate sets of footprints, so the fatal injuries must have come after everyone had left the tent. Whatever the case, all the Dalatov theories share a basic assumption that the full story has not yet been told. So that's kind of typical of, like, the Russians not really trusting their Soviet government that Mm. they believe that there's lots of lies being told to them. Right. For decades, the families and the Dalatov Group Memorial Foundation pressed for new investigations, and in 2019, it was finally approved. The new prosecutor was put in charge, and he organized a winter expedition to the site. His team took measurements, surveyed, photographed, and conducted a variety of experiments. They were able to establish the precise location of the tents and comb through historical data to determine the weather condition of that night, realizing that it was actually much more extreme than originally thought. The skiers were engulfed in a storm of winds up to 65 miles an hour and temperatures around minus 35. Yeah, that's nothing for us Canadian. Wait, wait, that's nothing for us Canadians, there, bud. Meaning that by the time evening fell, the group was probably unsure of their precise location. The new investigator was able to rule out almost seventy theories from the get-go, mostly due to the fact that they were basically conspiracy theories. This left the investigation to, with three to consider: avalanche, hurricane, which I was like, "What is there? Hurricanes in the mountains?" <laughs> and a slab of snow sliding over the tent. 
to which just last year the team relayed to the world that they had definitely discovered that the cause of the death was a huge slab of snow. Oh, wait, that's definitive? Well, Russia doesn't agree with it. Okay, but the Americans do. Yes. Well, that's what counts, right? Because America. Yeah. (laughs) So how did they figure this out? Two photographs taken by the Dolotov group at around 5 p.m. while they pitched the tent show that they cut deeply into the snowpack at right angles to the slope, forming a hollow. They had picked a spot where the mountain peak offered some shelter from the strongest winds. Later in the evening, a snow slab detached from the slope above them and buried most of the tent, pinning down the occupants and possibly causing some injuries. Fearing that a full-scale avalanche was imminent, the skiers cut their way out of the downslope side of the tent and fled to a rock ridge 150 feet away. But the big avalanche didn't come, and in the pitch darkness, the group was unable to find their way back to the tent. So they took shelter in the woods a mile away. And then the avalanche snuck up on one of them and cut out their tongue. (laughs) Slab avalanches are rare and occur when a layer of snow close to the surface comes loose from the layer beneath it and rolls down an incline in large chunks. This would have left behind less evidence than more dramatic events, and the fast-moving snow blocks would have been capable of injuring some campers without smothering them. The massive weight prevented them from retrieving their boots or warm clothing, and forced them to cut their way out of the downslope of the tent. So why did it take so long to come to this conclusion? Well, first, the tent was located on an incline that was previously considered to be too small to cause a bunch of snow to come crashing down. And the snow didn't come immediately, so it couldn't have been caused by them putting the tent up. So basically what that means is that they put up the tent at 5 p.m. and they weren't really, this snow slab didn't hit them until like much later at night. Usually if there's an avalanche, it'll, you know, you put your tent in and you're like, and it comes down right then. Oh, is that what happens? Yes. (laughs) Sounds like you were going to throw up. (laughs) So anyways, that's why they didn't think it was an avalanche. Mm. The initial avalanche theory also didn't provide satisfying answers to the question of how did the three of the group end up with such devastating injuries. This was not typical of avalanche victims who usually die from suffocation. Wait, are, are, you, are you telling me that it's not usual for an avalanche victim to have their eyes and cu- tongue cut out? Yes. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> the nine skiers retreated downhill, taking shelter under the cedar trees and building a fire. Because the nearby trees were icy and wet, they had to climb up the cedar in an attempt to gather branches, hence the skin and scraps of clothing found on the trunk. The fire they built in these extreme conditions was not enough to save them, however. The two most poorly dressed of the group died first. The burned skin on their bodies come from their desperate attempts to seek warmth from the fire. Like, they were probably literally putting their feet in the fire. Oh, damn. This would also suggest that the piece of flesh Yuri bit from his finger was probably a result of the delirium that overtakes someone who's dying of hypothermia, or perhaps from an attempt to test for sensation in a frostbitten hand. The surviving skiers cut the clothes off their dead comrades and dressed themselves in the remnants. At some point, the group split up. Three of them, including Dalatov, tried to return to the tent and soon froze to death as they struggled uphill. The other four, who were better dressed, decided to build a snow den to shelter in overnight. They needed deep snow, which they found in a ravine a couple hundred feet away. Unfortunately, the spot they picked laid above a stream which never freezes, and thus had hollowed out a deep icy tunnel below them. The group's digging caused its roof to collapse, throwing them onto the rocky stream bed and burying them in 10 to 15 feet of snow. The pressure of tons of snow forcing them against the rocks caused the traumatic injuries to this group. And the gruesome facial damage, the missing tongue, eyes, and lips, probably resulted from scavenging by small animals and decomposition. Finally, the radioactivity. Well, the expedition took place less than two years after the world's third worst nuclear accident where the group lived near. So they picked up the radioactiveness from that. The group did everything, save for where they put their tent, right. They conducted an emergency evacuation to the ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, digging it out and surviving. But avalanches are by far the most terrifying risk in the mountains in winter. And when the party heard the loud cracks that would have accompanied the snow slab, they took off. And I think the big thing, you said that they were very careful. They knew what they were doing and stuff like that. But... They're forgetting one thing. Mm. God also hates winter campers. (laughs) Yeah, that's the Bible. So he sent that avalanche to kill them. That's true. 
So this is, we were kind of talking about this a little bit. Um, a weird fact in Russia, the authorities and even the Dalatov Group Memorial Foundation do not accept these results. For many people, nature alone cannot explain a tragedy of this magnitude. They want perpetrators to be found and the state and its dark past must be identified. So they want it to be secret weapons testing. Yeah. <laughs> the Dalatov group sent a letter to pro- the prosecutor general declaring that, in its view, the skiers' deaths were caused by an atmospheric release of a powerful toxic substance when a secret weapons test went wrong. The problem with this is that Disney's Frozen has actually solved the mystery and that the people really? in Russia won't accept it. What? Yes, Frozen. To sum up quickly, okay. a Swiss scientist who studies avalanches watched Frozen and thought, hey, I can use their computer coding and mathing to adapt a version of the frozen code to show what would have happened in the Dalatov Pass incident. And it showed his hypothesis of a snow slab was correct. So they used the, like, computer coding from that frozen avalanche to be like, oh, this would have happened actually. That's crazy. Today, the Dalatov Pass is a popular hiking and tourist destination. Hundreds have visited the place and followed Dalatov's route on foot, snowmobile, or skis. People come from all over the world to see the place where the tent once stood, the stream bed where the bodies were found, and the cedar tree, its broken branches, still visible. So, Dakota, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think much like, I feel like the past few have had, you know, you gotta set the scene and do the intro and everything, but you know, I... I, I was like, oh, there's just a lot of details. I don't yeah, but like, it would make sense if I was just like, I know, I know, and I then know. they were dead, and you'd I be know. like, what? I know, I know, <laughs> you're building a story, I know, but, uh, I, and I'm glad you do that, because it would be bad if you didn't, but it still doesn't help the fact that the first part was boring for me. But, uh, then I was like, when you got into the actual action of the thing, I was like, oh, I'm trying to figure out, like, what could have caused this and stuff like that. I don't necessarily love that it was probably just a, you know, chance sort of avalanche sort of situation, yeah. uh, but, you know, seems likely, I suppose. Yeah. Wait, so an animal bit out the tongue? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I just want to, like, talk about that really quickly. Sure. Like, it, the, the avalanche. Yeah. For all of the things that happen to come together at once, it's just so, it's just a perfect storm. God really hates winter camping. <laughs> because, okay, so, like, just, I'll, I'll break it down for you, right? So, they, they get covered by this snow slob. They're able to get out. They end up in this tree little forest area, and they're like, fuck, like, we don't have enough clothes. So, then they build a fire, and two of them die from hypothermia. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, shit, we can't stay here. So, then they're like, well, I'm going to go. Some of them are like, I'm going to go back up and go to the tent. And the others are like, no, that's stupid. We have to go down. So, the ones that go up to find the tent, they get hypothermia and die. And then the other ones that, like, maybe had a better chance of surviving were like, okay, we're going to build this snow den, right? So, that's a thing that – have you ever seen – I don't know what they're called. A Quincy. So, they're like, okay, we're going to go build a Quincy. Um, and they just happen to just have the worst luck ever and pick the worst spot to build this tent, this this snow den over top of a river stream. And so they start digging it and the little floor beneath them collapses and they just fall 10 feet to the stream bed. Like, it was like literally everything that could go wrong this night went wrong. Yeah. They uh, have the worst luck in all of history. Well, I'll, I don't go know on all rec- of history. I'll go on record. The worst luck in all of history. Right. So, yeah, it was interesting hearing about, like, what them trying to figure it out and stuff like that and, like, coming up with nothing and then, then just, I mean, frozen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Being the frozen. Key. <laughs> I mean, that is one of my favorite movies. So that's pretty dope. Uh, and just like, it also makes me feel, bear with me, a little bit insignificant. <laughs> oh, okay. Because, can you imagine being that smart? <laughs> that you just like, you're watching Frozen, and then you're not just like, let it go, <laughs> let it go. But you're like, I think I, I think I can figure out the, the trajectory of this, uh, how this would work and the, the math and science and whatever. Mm. I'm just saying big words now. Yeah, I know. math and science are really big I know, words. <laughs> but, but like, bear with me. <laughs> and to be able to just like figure out this thing that happened in the fifties, it's like, I just wanted to let it go. You did. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I can kind of empathize with him because often I'll be like just hanging out and I'm like, wow, that'd be like a really excellent lesson. I can make a cool lesson out of that. Oh. So, you know, me and the Swiss avalanche studier. Yeah. We're you're, like basically you're, the you're, same the, you're the same. Yeah. That's, that's fair. So my rating. 
I give this. I feel like it's a six. No, it's higher than Ooh. a six. Um, it started out in the six range, Always. but it got you got it up to a seven point two. Okay. Frost Giant <laughs> Chief of Police's <laughs> out of ten. Okay. Cool. I'm proud of that. I think maybe next week you should tell me what I should research so I can get a higher mark because I'd like to be back up in the nines. Please. <laughs> please, please, I please, need I this. Need this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all we have for this week. We'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to hang out with us. If you enjoyed listening to what we had to say, please download our podcast from wherever you get your podcasts, leave a review, or tell your friends about us, because indie podcasts really do grow through word of mouth. And if you want to stay in contact or see behind-the-scenes action, you can follow us on Instagram at The Reluctant Historian, or on Facebook under The Reluctant Historian Podcast, or leave us a tip at buymeacoffee.com slash thehistorian. You can also shoot us an email with future show ideas or corrections you may have noted to the reluctant historian at gmail.com. And also let us know about uh, price houses in your area. Maybe we'll move there. <laughs> so we'll see you next week. Same time, same place. I'd like to take you out with a song. Oh, uh, it's uh, we're going to bring in my friend, the frost giant. Okay. Come in, come in. It wasn't me. And she got me on the counter. Wasn't me. And she caught me on the sofa. Wasn't me. He's implying that it wasn't it wasn't him that did it. Right. Would it be more sense if he was like, and she caught me in the tent. It wasn't me. I didn't have time to write this, okay? I'm done. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Erickson, host of The Open Highway. You know, I've had some incredible adventures in my life, and along the way I learned a little bit about everything, which, to be honest with you, is just enough to get me into trouble. But I bring that with me when I sit down with guests from the worlds of politics, news, science, current events, entertainment, and more. The Open Highway with Eric Erickson. Join me on The Open Highway, and let's have a conversation. Find it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.